Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals. All thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. On 882 6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Our guest uh, in this episode has dedicated a huge amount of his life to helping those uh, in a less fortunate position. And uh, as we speak to him... Uh, it really marks the end of an era in, in what uh, has been uh, an extraordinary tale uh, in the uh, in the not-for-profit sector, in the sector that uh, that reaches out to people who find themselves uh, in a vulnerable position. Uh, he has been the CEO of Anglicare for nigh on a quarter of a century, which is a, a huge period of time. So uh, it's with great pleasure that I say hello and welcome to Ian Carter. Hi, Tim. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. Um you must be at that time now, as you're just about to hand over the reins of Anglicare WA. You, you, are you reflecting a lot on what uh, you've done over the last 25? And it is—it's a huge chunk of time to to look back over, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. It's whether just a, a conversation with a staff member, or having to prepare for something, or write some notes. Yeah. In these kind of farewell kind of era, yes, I've been doing a lot of reflecting, um, and it is a long time. Um, I got the job. And I was really cocky when I got the job, you know. Um, I went, went to a final interview. There's a long story, but cut to the chase. I went to the final interview, finished off some something or other, and the guy said, you know, give you strengths and weaknesses. And I had a sheet all typed up as mm. Gabe handed it over. And the guy said, where's the weaknesses sheet? And I said, <laughs> there aren't any. This is my job. And he said, oh, you're a bit of a smart cookie, aren't you? I said, I'm hoping that's what you're going to say at the end of this interview, which he did, and I got offered yeah. the job. And I thought I'd be there for four or five years. Right. Um, I thought this was would it, be a was step it in my career. Was it a fixed contract that you signed then or <coughs> open-ended? I, can't, I, can't, I, think it was an, I think it was a permanent, yeah. you know, open-ended kind yeah. of contract. But I thought I'd be there for a relatively short period of time. Mm. Not because I didn't believe in it, but I thought I was probably going to go into this mm. and then go on to something else. Yep. And have you found in the last 25 years that you did, in fact, have zero weaknesses? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, no, you do have weaknesses. You've all got weaknesses, but you work on them. Mm. You know, it's like every every part of life. Like, you know, like doing media interviews. I'd never done media interviews before. Yeah. I'd done some media training when I was a senior public servant in government, but I'd actually never done an interview. Yeah. Kevin Humphreys did my media training years, wow. and years and years ago, and he was great. Yeah, but then I had to learn to to do it. Yeah, so it was a weakness, mm. and I had suddenly had to, mm. you know, had media people going mm. um, 
Just slow down a bit, Ian. Mm. A few too many R's. Mm. Can you summarise those into shorter bits that actually could be used as, mm. oh, okay. Yeah. So all that became part of a learning on a journey. Yeah. And Anglicare has changed so much over the years. When I started, it was a metropolitan-focused agency with a turnover of about $2.5 million. And now we're just under $50 million and we run That's services huge. across the state. Mm. So, uh, April, so April... 1995 yep. is when you Started. took over. My younger brother's birthday. Right. Yeah. Uh, what was going on um, in April 1995 that led you to Anglicare? <coughs> I've, I'd always been passionate. I'd been part of the Anglican Social Responsibilities Commission. I yep. you know, went to church. Um, it was an important part of my life. I was actually the son of a Methodist minister. Um, and I was, I'm the only one of my... Um, of the four boys who has continued any connection with the church, but I thought it, I probably thought I needed to make up for them. Yep. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it was it was an interesting part of my journey. I was on the Anglican Social, and I didn't know the job had actually been advertised until someone on the commission said, Ian, you'd be great. You should apply. So there was a lot swirling around in my mind. Um, I'd just been through a divorce. Um, I'd just turned 40. I'd moved house. I thought, well, I might as well do the whole lot. So there was all, a bit going let's on. Let's <laughs> just do the whole, all the stressful things. Let's do them all right now. So I'll change jobs at the same time. So it seemed like the right time. I'd been in these jobs. My passion had been around social justice and community building. Mm. And I thought Anglicare brought all of those things together. And the, and the things that, uh, that um, I suppose, contributed uh, to homelessness in Perth, uh, in 1995 uh, and other unfortunate positions that people might have found themselves in in, in, in 1995 when you uh, took over that role. Are they still present today? Have they changed much in those 25-odd years? It's a really good question. I think probably it has changed quite significantly. I think those fundamentals about family breakdown, mm. um, marriage breakdown and other things forces people into situations People losing jobs. You know, we all say we're six months away from poverty and homelessness. Yeah. And we are. You know, horrible things can happen in your life and suddenly my life has turned around. But I think what we're seeing now is the impact of family and domestic violence, drug abuse and alcohol abuse in our community. And they're some of the bigger drivers than they were. So they've gotten worse. They've got worse. So family and domestic violence has got worse, has not improved. Yep. Um, and the use of drugs and alcohol having a huge impact in our community. Because th- th- there seems to be the suggestion that uh, maybe it hasn't gotten worse, it's just that people are reporting it more. But that's not your experience. I suppose no. when you're at the, at the coalface here, you're seeing the, you know, the outcomes. Yeah, look, I think, there is, I think you're right in saying that some, some of that reporting has increased because of we are talking about it. So mm. there's an element of that. Mm. But I truly believe that it's a huge issue for us as a community to face up to. And we need every kind of service. You know, like the federal government has just announced another family and domestic violence package, some more funding, and state government's got a plan, which is great. But we've got to look at short-term and long-term solutions in this. This is not just about having a women's refuge and picking up the women and their children and doing some work with them. We've got to do stuff around attitudinal change in our community. We've actually got to get men to start talking with each other 
about what's acceptable and not acceptable, both in a workplace and in a family mm. and in a neighbourhood, and to call it out. And when the guy in the crib room at a workplace says, I bloody showed my missus who was boss last night, someone's got to say, actually, pal, that's not acceptable. And that's going to be a slow change, isn't it? That's going to be through at least one more generations. And and we need school-based programs to back that up, to start getting kids at primary school and olders going, look, actually, I'm starting to understand that men and women have this equal role in our community and that men Mm. aren't more powerful and men Mm. aren't the ones who are going to dominate and it's not a men-dominated society. They're going to understand that mutuality and love and respect are actually really exciting things in our Mm. community and that's what we should be growing. Mm. 25 years. It's a a long time for anyone to be in in one position in this day and age. So congratulations on (laughs) longevity there. Um, What's particular achievements stand out for you? Uh, when you look back, what are you most proud of uh, across those 25 years? Look, the, the, Probably the thing I'm most proud of is, is the staff who are gathered around. Um, we've developed some exciting visions and I had a function with staff yesterday and I said to a, a huge lot of them gathered that it's them who's kept me here. Mm. that you keep getting infected. So you gather people around and then they rise up and then you, you're feeling a bit down. You're going to a meeting and someone goes, guess what happened yesterday? And you go, brilliant, fantastic. So that very proud of that, very proud that there are many CEOs in the sector who have been on my executive and have been part of my leadership team and have gone on to become chief executives in the sector. I'm very proud of that. There are some projects that we've done um, – there is a joke around Anglicare um, that if you're going to have a more than half an hour conversation with me, I'll mention Foyer Oxford at least 15 times. Um, <laughs> we'll keep it, a tally then. That's yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it, it is an amazing project. It's a youth transition project. And I went to a conference and someone did a presentation on it and I brought it back to Perth to my team and said to my youth team, what do you think about this concept? And they said, it sounds fantastic. So mm. we explored it together leadership team and off we went. And now uh, FOIA's run in the US, UK, France, New Zealand, Australia. We now run the world's largest FOIA with, with, with some of the, if not the best outcomes in mm. the world. Mm. So more than 90% of young people who go through FOIA Oxford who've been through all kinds of issues in their lives, more than 90% of them are leaving into independent living, connected to education, training and employment and in stable accommodation. They are outstanding figures. So, so what's so special about this model then? It's – this is not a hostel. This is not a facility. This is a home for 98 young people in a beautiful building, purpose-built in Oxford Street and Leadville, thus mm. for Oxford. And those 98 young people get wraparound support purses on a deal-for-deal deal basis. So, Tim, if you turned up, the deal would be about you. It wouldn't be a generic deal. Yeah. It would be what you're excited about, what you're focusing on at the moment, and then we'll respond and say, well, if that's what you're going to do, continue your traineeship, blah, 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 go to the drug classes, whatever. We'll back you with wraparound support for you to achieve those goals. Yeah. So it's so very tailored. Absolutely tailored for each mm. person. And we, I also use the word aspirational a lot. 
and it's an aspirational community. It's a community where people aspire to be mm. living independent, living and getting on with their lives. So they mm. support each other. Yeah. And you create a community where people do that. Yeah. So the wraparound support that, and the, the, the girl who sits on the front desk at um, Foyer Oxford, she's an important part of the team. You know how when you come home as a school kid, and you've played in the soccer team in the afternoon and you mm. scored your first goal for the season and you come home and mum says, how'd your soccer game go? And you go, I got a goal. Fantastic. Congratulations. People like the front receptionist go, how'd you go? And exactly the same happens. Yeah. Yeah. She'll feed it back to the case manager. Yeah. Did you know that Tim got a goal today in his soccer? Case manager will mention it at their meeting later on the week. I believe mm. you got a goal. Becomes like that de facto family in yeah. some senses. Yeah. The wraparound support becomes all of the different aunties, uncles, mums, dads, brothers, sisters who play those roles in saying, yeah. I'll help you with this. Have yeah. you thought about that? Yeah. All those kind of things. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think you've mentioned it three times so yeah, far, good. Yeah? So good. Yeah. We need to take a break. So you've got to squeeze in many more references <laughs> <laughs> across the rest of this chat. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories. Ian Carter is our special guest. Uh, we'll be back with more very soon here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Ian Carter is our special guest in this episode who's just about to call time on uh, almost a quarter of a century uh, as the CEO of Anglicare WA. Uh, Ian, I'm keen to know about the younger you. Uh, well before you decided to go on this path and, and join Anglicare yep. for 25 or so years, um, tell us about the family environment that you grew up in. You, you mentioned your father before. Yep, my father was initially a Methodist minister and then a teacher uh, mm-hmm. and then deputy headmaster at Wesley. Right. Um, and so I actually went to Wesley and you know, the old teacher's scholarships, the only way we were going to go, but, <laughs> but you know, went, went to Wesley, which was, which was great. I loved my sport. Yep. You know, so cricket, football, then hockey, seriously, um, all those kind of things in the athletics team. I loved all that kind mm. of stuff. Um, and it was a good school. And interestingly enough, you know, you, a lot of people have it, but, you know, there's a whole lot of close friends that I've got who are people who I've known since back then. School days. Who went to school with. Yeah. Um, you know, best men at my wedding, continue, both of them. And, you know, those kind of things. And you sort of look up and you go, this is important, that ongoing connection and yeah. that creation kind of thing. Also had a headmaster at Wesley called Clive Hamer who was very much progressive in his kind of thinking. And it was old language, but he created a thing called the For Others Fund, which is right. a funny, you know, old kind of name from the 1970s, kind of when, when I, late 60s, early 70s when I was at school. But it says everything. He made sure that all the kids at Wesley fundraised and did things for everything from the Salvation Army to World Vision to whatever it is, mm. and we'd go out and do it. And I can remember shaking cans on a corner in the city, doing stuff around neighbourhoods, going and knocking on doors, raising money. And I often reflect back and think that clearly impacted That's where it me. started. Yeah. yeah. That it obviously lit a, lit a fire on you back yeah. then. Yeah. And then I went to university. I'm a BCom failed. I, I followed my <laughs> mates and started a commerce course at UWA. 
and I got an A in the Reed Library coffee shop yep. and an A-plus <laughs> at the Steve's Hotel down the road, and I was playing serious mm. hockey. Tavernology 101. Yeah, 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 exactly. Did well there too. Yeah. But accounting, economics, maths 1-0, I was not excited about and realised I'd made a mistake. <laughs> I then but you've got a life education, though. Well, that's right. Yeah, in those it, other places you've got to experience you these things so they influence you into the future. And so I have done that. And then I went, looked up, and ended up going to Wait, now Curtin University. Yep. And I did a social science degree. And my Bachelor of Arts in Social Science was a fantastic degree. Mm. Um, core units on sociology, social science, social science methodology, again, Fantastic training for me. i mm. drawn on that degree hugely. I then still didn't know what I wanted to do. And then my then girlfriend, later wife, um, she'd signed up for a teacher's scholarship. So I did that and ended up doing a postgraduate diploma in education at UWA right. and then started teaching. Right. Got posted to Rockingham High School, 1,500 kids. Yeah. You know, a bit of an eye-opener. Because uh, Rockingham would have barely been considered exactly. part of Perth exactly. in those days, right? Exactly right. Yeah. It, and I, I do remember the headmaster at the time building, if ever, anyone knows Rockingham High School, there was a corner that headed off towards the shopping centre and there was a lot of sand there because it was still being yeah. developed. He put all these slabs down and put native plants either side of it, came back Monday morning Every slab and every plant had gone. <laughs> they were in backyards right, right across <laughs> Rockingham. But I also start, my journey started there. I met a guy called Peter Kenyon, uh, who was the youth education officer. He had a big influence on my life um, in terms of the kind of stuff that he did. So he and I and some others created a social enterprise called mm. Project Recycle, which got old bikes, mm. took the good bits off old bikes and stuck them together and created right. new bikes and sold them off. And kids, unemployed kids did that. And I also, um, one of my mates, Wayne Richards, was an so English teacher and I was a social studies and geography teacher and did a bit of English. So we were talking about stuff and there was a huge drama room, you know, in those yep. schools of that kind of era. So we put in an Australian Schools Commission grant and got $125,000 in the 19, late 1970s, and we built a TV studio Wow! in the drama room. We had dollies, headphones, vision mixers, sound mixers, and, wow. and it became a focal point for the yeah. school. And the kids would be in there at lunchtime, yeah. and they'd be playing music and doing stuff and filming it, and yeah. they'd, having people's paper faces come out of the drums with a vision mixer game and bits and pieces. And right. It, that was like also I think a portent of the way I yeah. kind of tend to operate is I collaborate with people. I like working together. I like being innovative and different. I like thinking about things in a different way. So that very much. And then I became a youth education officer at Lockridge High School and went to the headmaster and said, I don't want to do any teaching. I just mm. want to be doing community work, youth mm. work, and run camps. And he said, yep, sounds fantastic. Mm. And so I did that and then went into state government after that to head up um, a, a, a little branch doing some stuff on cooperatives and community enterprises mm. and then a whole range of – ended up as director of community economic development in the Department of Commerce and Trade. 
It seems like in those uh, earlier years, perhaps you were doing more of the practical hands-on yeah. sort of stuff. Um, and now what you're saying is perhaps you were getting drawn down to the policy mm. side of things. Is it exactly. is it more the hands-on really helping people in a practical, tangible way? Is that, is that what you, you find uh, most satisfying? The most satisfying thing for me is to create something which has an impact on people. Yeah. And whether it be in policy frameworks or getting funding for more service delivery or being involved in processes around designing that service delivery, building on all the experience that I've got and the experience of our clients and the experiences of our staff, that's what excites me. I love doing Mm. that kind of work. The last couple of years, we've had an innovation team within Anglicare WA. It's been a really important thing for us to actually go you can't just keep, you know, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over mm. and over again, expecting a different yep. result. We've and done way too people much. People challenge that. that theory on a daily exactly. basis, don't they? They do. <laughs> but who actually makes the change? Yeah. So we're now, we've got huge measurement tools in our organisation and we're saying, well, look, this isn't getting better. Yeah. Let's go back to the drawing board. Mm. Let's involve clients. They're the experts in their lives and they know the things that drive them crazy. And there'll be things about... Centrelink or Homes West or Anglicare that they think could be done differently. Why are you mm. doing it that way? Mm. They're the things we've got to constantly challenge mm. ourselves with. There are far too many people in this community at the moment who are missing out. Yeah, and, and I want to really get into that um, in more detail uh, in a moment because you're in a pretty unique position where you, you would have seen a lot that a lot of people wouldn't have seen um, over the last 25 years and, and more really. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, just you, you mentioned uh, your brothers. Yep. Um, I understand you've got a twin brother, an identical I do. twin. I do have an identical twin What's brother. What's that like? It's fascinating. And sometimes people say, um, you know, do you have those moments where yeah. you know things? Um, that sort and, of sixth sense, that, yeah. that special connection. And we have it every now and then, although yep. both of us, I think, were the kind of boys who didn't want to be called the twinnies. <laughs> If anyone's got twins, don't call them the twi- don't call your kids the twinnies. <laughs> Just call them Ian and Alan. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I wanted to be Ian and Alan wanted to be Alan, but we were we are identical twins. Yeah, uh, it has. You didn't get dressed in the same clothes growing up, did you? Well, if, matching clothes. Well, it, if I saw Alan in you know grey shorts and a yellow t-shirt, I'd go inside <laughs> and pull on blue jeans and a, yeah. and a black t-shirt <laughs> just to be different. And yeah. he would do that sometimes as well. So I think. That was an interesting journey. But, I mean, interestingly enough, as an identical, Alan's gay. Yeah. And so, like, in, in our journey, one of those moments was he arrived at my house, early 20s. I was married. And he pulled in the driveway. I didn't know he was gay. Yeah. Hadn't never come up as an issue. And he was in his early 20s mm. and stuff. And I walked through my lounge room. Al's car pulled in. And I said to my wife... Alan's come to tell us he's gay. And we'd never talked about it with Alan, with my wife, with anybody else. Alan came in, sat down. We had morning tea, got three quarters way through morning tea. And he goes, I've actually come here to have a yarn with you about something. Yeah. And he goes, I just want to you tell went, you. I know. And I went, and Wendy, <laughs> my then wife, looked at me and went, yes, okay, you two. But it was like that. Sometimes those moments happen. Yeah. Yeah. We are close, obviously. We talk mm. all the time. I was mm. talking to him 45 minutes ago, we, do, we talk all the time and do yeah. lots of things. Our voice sounds exactly the same. Yeah. 
if Alan was here on another microphone, even you, Ben, would pick it. With eyes closed, you, you really pick it. No, Is that right? um, my wife can't pick it. So we don't play games, but I was he, say, he could. I'm, I'm thinking of all the mischief you could get up to with that. Um, but we, I regularly have to get my driver's license out to convince some people that I'm Ian, not that Alan. you're not him. Yeah. Wow. So, extraordinary. Yeah, it is an interesting. It's an interesting part. You're, and, you're an endless source of fascination to people. Uh, <laughs> just, just, yeah. Just being an identical twin. I'm mean, looking. When when I went to Wesley, there was a couple of bo- there was some twin identical twins underneath us, the Stannard boys, Linton and Phil, and they're exactly the same as yeah. us. So when we walk up to them, I go Linton Phil, <laughs> and they come up and go Ian Allen. <laughs> it's Ian. Oh, good yeah. to see you. Ian. <laughs> Get the driver's license yeah. out, show him again. <laughs> Um, we need to take a break, Ian, but um, thank you for sharing <laughs> with us. Um, this is Inspiring Stories. So in this episode, we're speaking to Ian Carter. Back with more very soon. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to uh, Inspiring Stories. Uh, everyone has a story to tell. This one, Ian Carter's, uh, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Ian, I mentioned you get asked a lot uh, to give your impressions of, uh, of, of homelessness and other associated issues yep. uh, in WA. One of the phrases that seems to have um, taken hold in recent years is this whole concept of uh, the working poor. Um, is that just is that just a new term that applies to something that's been around a long time, or is that a relatively new phenomenon in itself? Look, I think there's probably been various versions of it from for many years. I think it's a bit more prevalent these mm. days. Uh, people are talking about low wages growth right yep. at the moment. You know, I was listening, been listening to interviews recently about um, Reserve Bank cutting rates. What are they going to do? Is it going to promote wages growth? But is that wages growth only going to be at the top end, not the bottom end? Mm. Uh, are we actually going to entrench further working poor? And yep. that's quite clearly a reality. If if you are on a minimum wage in retail, hospitality, base grade kind of entry positions in a lot of organisations, if you're trying to be get a house, keep food and provide options in your family – you don't make it. No. And we so do, they are the working poor, are they? They are. Yeah. And we, yeah. we, we do a rental across Australia. The Anglicare Australia Network does a rental affordability snapshot every mm. year around March and April. And clearly highlights that if you're on New Start Allowance or Single Parent Allowance, there's virtually nothing available for you, which is in the affordable bracket. Mm. But it also shows that those on minimum wage are also absolutely struggling and they're less than 5% of properties are available to them yeah. are actually affordable. And if if it's not affordable, it means you're spending more than 30% of your income on rent. Yeah. And we know stories in Anglicare WA of people paying 50-plus percent of their income on rent, and they know that on Tuesday and Wednesday nights before the, the money goes in on the Wednesday night or the Thursday morning, they've got zero left. So when kids come up and say, oh, the special excursion tomorrow – but I need $15, they don't go. Mm. Uh, and they're also making decisions about food on the table, you know, who gets the food, mum and dad or mum not eating, all those kind of things. Mm. I just think they're horrific mm. stories in terms of behind the doors 
of neighbourhoods right across the Perth metropolitan area, yep. there are people who are struggling to survive. And those people that sadly fall into that category, uh, are there more of those people today than there were, say, in the mid-90s when you joined Anglicare? I think there are quite clearly, and I think the numbers are really yeah. highlighting what's going on. Mm. Um, there are a lot more people around, and I think some of the stuff that's going on, um, look at a federal government level, you know, the parent next stuff that's going on at the moment, the stuff around the, the um, crackdown on single parents, yep. um, the welfare card stuff that's going on, the failure by any government in the last 25 years to raise the rate of new start above the current $39 a day is holding people in those levels. They cannot get out of it. Mm. You go and try and live on $39 a day, everything. That's that's sort of the benchmark. That's new start, new start allowance. $39 a day. a day. So that's your rent, food, everything. everything. And you just go, how could you do it? Mm. And you can't. Uh, we're actually running a campaign with a lot of Anglican parishes at the moment where – uh, it's based on some stuff that's happened elsewhere in the, in our network, but um, it's actually trying to get people to actually take the opportunity to try and do that. And the difference between the $39 a day and what they earn in a week or a fortnight, they donate to Anglicare to do some work. Mm. And mm. You know, the, the stories that you hear of people who try and do that mm. stuff on living on $39 a day. Choice goes out of your life. Yep. You know? Survival. It is. I mm. mean, Tim, you and I can go home tonight, say to family, I was thinking we'd go to the movies. It's just not on the radar screen of people on minimum wage mm. or on welfare payments. They can't go to the movies. What is it? Fourteen, fifteen dollars each. Um, never mind the popcorn. Never mind the popcorn and the other mm. bits and pieces. It's just coming coming here to Optus Stadium mm. and going to the footy. Mm. Forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just think, you know, like we're very lucky to have that choice. Yeah. yeah. And when, when we talk about choice, that's the fundamental choice in the community that we should be focusing on. I remember speaking to someone in the, in, also in the not-for-profit sector. Um, I, won't, I won't say who it was because I don't want to quote them. Um, but they were talking about, um, you know, the various sort of uh, economic cycles over the years. And, and I, I wrongly assumed uh, – this might be specific just to them and, and then their organisation only. But they said, I thought during that time of great prosperity when we had the big mining boom mm. here, I thought they'd be flush with cash and people wanting to just give them fistfuls of cash. Yep. And he said it was actually the opposite because he, he actually found it harder because uh, there was more competition in the space, but also that prosperity kind of brought with it this sense of I must have more than my neighbour – um, it almost brought out this greedy side of people uh, as well. He said they actually did better and do better now uh, when times are a bit leaner and meaner because people are, are more aware of the struggles and they are more willing to part with their own cash to help others who don't have that. Oh, yeah. Is that your experience as well? No, probably not. Um, our fundraising partnership with a whole range of people has probably held up. Probably... The big corporates has probably dropped off for us a bit. Yeah, you know, um, starting to lift a little bit now. But there was, there's been a strong period where the hatches were battened down. Yeah, um, they were looking at their P and L balance sheets and going, let's just pull this back a bit. I think families were doing their own version of that. Mm. But look, for the most part, our fundraising held up. Um, we have a very loyal fundraising um, group. 
we probably don't have the kind of donor files of some big agencies, yeah. um, you know, national and others. Ours is smaller, but they're mm. very loyal with mm. us. And the, we try and connect them with the stories. We'll tell stories about our people, and everyone does that. But, yeah, that sense. And, look, I, I think the stuff around the um, the economic boom what, or whatever we want to call it, mm. it was an interesting time. Mm. And maybe we have to reflect back at both an individual family corporate level and at a state level. Mm. You know, next time if anything like that happens, can we actually make better decisions? Mm. <laughs> you know, have we, have we actually made the right investment in the right places? I th- and I think as a broader, more philosophical part of that, there is a sense that we need to understand. You know, people talk about, oh, gee, you know, Run harder, you bastards! You're not trying hard enough. You know the the people who are the working poor or the unemployed yeah. and that. Yeah. Go on, you can. The opportunity's there. It's not. There are six to nine people for every job vacancy. Yeah. In this country, mm. so it's not a matter of them running harder or being better or whatever it is. And we need to talk about the impact in our community about what's going on. And I think you know we worry about issues to do with crime running higher levels than we've seen before in some areas, uh, higher levels of people incarcerated in prisons at massive cost and all those kind of things, we can actually make some serious decisions. I, I chaired the State Task Force on Poverty in 96, 97, early in, in my time at Anglicare, mm. and I came up with a title for the report, which was Community Choices, Individual Lives. And we as, as a community, all of us, need to make those choices wisely, build on some, on some experiences that we've been through and say these are the clear investments that we need to make now yep. which will benefit everyone yep. in the community. And if everyone is benefiting, so are we. Are people getting that message, do you think? Are we getting more generous as a I, community? I think there is a change in attitude and I think people are looking at different ways to partner and embark on a relationship with yep. with people. Um, I'm very pleased that you know things like family and domestic violence, mm. suicide, and other things are being talked about now. Uh, we didn't talk about them before. No. Uh, we're talking about the impact of unemployment on people, yep. the mental and physical health impacts of it. We know the research. It's unequivocal. So we're actually beginning a process, we're starting to see social policy formed around a lot more sophisticated look at it, not just keep funding that service. Oh, we've always funded them. Give them some more money. You've actually got to say, what are you achieving? And is it part of our strategic future? Mm. Ian, we need to take a, another break, but I'm keen to hear what's next for you because obviously you've uh, gained an extraordinary amount of experience at Anglicare and uh, across your other roles. We haven't had really even had time to get into some of your many other hats that you've worn uh, over the years, but I'm keen to know what's next uh, for Ian. So we'll get into that after the break. This is Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Ian Carter AM is our special guest. Just quickly, getting that honour, the AM attached to your name now differentiates you more from your brother too, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
how does that go with you? Someone who's obviously very selfless, when someone decides to recognise you, how do you cope with that? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't like it. But, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was very humbling. Yeah. Um, and, and it was wonderful when it was announced. And yeah, um, it was funny. My, um, I know someone who got it years ago. And I was about halfway through my career at Anglicare. And mm. I don't know whether he foresaw, but he, he died before I got it, mm. this person. And he said to me, if you get honoured, Ian, with an Order of Australia or something, just remember, wear it with pride because people took time and energy and passion to put your application in to make it That's happen. That's true. So honour them. Mm. And I've always thought about that since, that I'm humbled and in that honour being bestowed on me. And, yeah, it was amazing. Mm. Going to Government House and getting it with Ken Michael at the time, you know, that yeah. really special time. Pretty special experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, you're keen to point out you're not retiring. No. You are resigning. Yep. Um, I've got to ask, what are you going to do? don't know. I'm putting it out to the universe. A bit. Yeah. I'm doing something for state government. Okay. So it's recently been announced that, you know, the Bentley 360 project, the old mm-hmm. Brownlee Towers, yep. are coming down and yep. there's going to be a whole exciting new sort of village community built around both commercial and social and affordable housing structured into that um, new community. So I'm chairing the community processes, the community reference group around that. So... I'm looking forward to play that role with the Housing Authority and Minister Peter Tinley, so that's good. Yep. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I'm a workaholic. I, I, you know, I'm the energizer bunny, as my staff would say. <laughs> uh, you know, and Which I imagine you would have to be because, you know, there aren't many people who could do your job. I imagine it would take it a huge emotional toll. It does. Um, having to deal with, and in some cases, probably not being able to help yep. everyone who comes knocking on your door. Yeah, but it's like, a, you know, yeah. It is a it is a very complex job. Yeah. And you know, one of the one of the interesting things is on Saturday, March the sixteenth, which is the day after I finish, I know that my if my phone rings, it won't be EJ saying you need to do a media call, or it won't be my head of services saying there's a crisis in one of our locations. You need to be aware of it, and you need to be oversighting whatever it is. Because it's a twenty-four hour a day, seven yep. day a week job. Yeah, you know we run women's refuges, youth crisis centres, Foyer Rockford, suicide programs in the northwest. A massive range of work and stuff's happening all the time. Mm. And so it will be interesting to wake up on a Saturday morning knowing that the phone ring. If it, it might be my twin brother, not <laughs> not EJ. <laughs> and in terms of distractions, I know you do invest heavily in the uh, in the fortunes of your beloved West Coast Eagles. So. Um, you must be a happy man on that front at the moment, at least. I, I am. And, yeah, look, because like, like last year, as many Eagles supporters would say, we didn't start the season out thinking we were going to win the premiership. And it's one of those – and it's what's happened in the last couple of years between Western yeah. Bulldogs, Richmond and others. There's been teams who've won it who no one expected were going to win it. fairy tale. particular year. Mm. So it was a bit of a fairy tale. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I was, yeah, I was jumping up and down. When, I, I bet. Yeah, and I – when Dom Sheed had that kick in the forward pocket, I love um, Simpson being interviewed when after the game, and he said, 
did you think he'd kick it? And he said, no. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, and all I wanted to do is brass his leg now in, in per- perpetuity because it was such an amazing yeah. kick and what an amazing game of football. So well, I think uh, there was – I remember there was a story not long after the grand final where the the boots of the players were, were going up for auction, weren't well, they? And I'm pretty sure Dom Sheeds was fetching top dollar yeah. just about. Probably the, not the you know the most sought-after player on the whole side, but – because of that kick. And, yep. it's, and it's interesting, look, to, to draw back to a bit of me in some senses, what I really like about the last couple of years, and I know Russell Gibbs, the chairman of yep. the West Coast Eagles, well, it's been culture from top to bottom. Yeah. And I know that's what Russell's mm. been focused on. Mm. So from board down to the person doing the boots, mm. it's been about a total culture within the West Coast Eagles about respect and working together and blah, blah, blah. And, you know... It's a message to all of us. Are you pitching for a job at the Eagles, Ian? Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Would I be as blatant as that? (laughs) But look, where I I am passionate about community. I am passionate about inclusion, passionate about social justice. So it'll be somewhere in that kind of space because I always live out my passion. I've been lucky. I've been very lucky in the last 24 years to wake up every day and live my passion out in my work. Yeah. So I'll, I'll find something which sparks it again, and you'll hear from me again. And in terms of uh, advice uh, to your successor, I mean, you know, God, you don't know me to tell you what the, the issues are, but if you just, you know, even from afar, you, you, you see headlines about um, WA's ice epidemic, you see headlines about, you know, terrible situations in Indigenous communities and remote parts of WA about more and more people falling into that category that we talked about, the working poor. Uh, With all of that going on, what advice uh, would you give to your successor? My successor is Mark Glasson, who's been my Director of Services for the last five years. And he probably doesn't need a huge amount of advice, but my general view would be it's really important that Anglicare continues to play a role on bringing the whole community together to play a role in addressing people who are vulnerable mm. and entrenched disadvantage. Yep. That's what we need to focus on. It's not just us. No, there's no silver bullet on any of this, and it's not the responsibility of any one person or organisation. We all need to work together to make the change that needs to happen. And on that note, thank you. It's uh, Ian Carter AM, the uh, outgoing uh, CEO of Anglicare WA. This has been uh, inspiring stories. Uh, Ian, thank you again for coming in Thanks, and Tim. sharing yours. Everyone has a story to tell. This one brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.